This is History Interrupted. I'm Will Thomas. On the night of October 1st, in 1893, a mob of over 200 white men near Lake City, South Carolina, lynched a 20-year-old black man named George McFadden. A 16-year-old white girl alleged that he raped her. In the 1890s, in the United States, there were more than 180 lynchings a year. A lynching took place in America about every other day. No one was ever prosecuted for these murders. According to the Equal Justice Initiative's report in 2015 on lynching, more than 4,000 black people were publicly murdered in the United States South between 1877 and 1950. We are joined today by Deirdre Cooper Owens, an expert on African-American history at the University of Nebraska. She is the Charles and Linda Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and is the Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program at Nebraska. She is also a relative of George McFadden. Deirdre Cooper Owens, welcome to History Interrupted. Thank you for having me, for allowing me to share this part of American history, but also my family's history. When did you first encounter the story of the lynching of George McFadden? I was not looking for it. I didn't know about it. Um, I was a keynote lecturer at the University of Alabama. And as a part of the trip, I was to visit the Equal Justice Institute and their museum on lynching. And so I had gone through their downtown Montgomery Museum and took the shuttle along with uh, the two, two tour guides that the school had set up uh, for me. And we're walking through, and as a native of South Carolina, I wanted to see the markers for South Carolina. If you've ever been there or any of your listeners, there are these stone columns that, that are suspended in the air. And so I'm looking for two counties, Georgetown County, my father's family's uh, home and my birthplace, and then Williamsburg County, my mother's family's birthplace and where I was, uh, where I was raised. And so I come to the Williamsburg County slab, essentially, and the second name, and this is October 23rd, 2019, so not a full year, the second name was George McFadden. And I, I, it stopped me in my tracks. And I remember one of the, the young women said, what, are you okay? And I said, I'm, I'm related to this man. And I said, my great-grandfather's name was George McFadden, who was born in 1897, four years after George McFadden died um, or was murdered. And I, I remember just having to take a breath. I took a couple of photos um, and I knew that he had to have been a relative because in these small towns, there tends to be one set of a family. And so uh, in, the, in that area near Lake City, there's one set of black McFaddens and I'm related to them. Um, and so I remember calling our family genealogist, my mother, and sharing this with her and putting it on social media. And a number of friends found the article, uh, a newspaper article about the lynching. And uh, even the description of the geographical area, there, there are a couple of articles, and that is the area where my maternal 
uh, grandmother's people, as we say, uh, are, are from. And it was just surreal that um, I would be confronted with an archive, um, you know, in that particular way. Reading the newspaper accounts of this incident, the, the cold-blooded nature of these murders, I think, becomes clear. Um, white editors were celebrating his lynching as methodical, you know. Uh, one wrote, there was no bloody mob out for vengeance. The crowd was described as perfectly quiet. Why, why did whites go out of their way to call lynchings like this one orderly and quiet and sort of depict it in these terms? You know, I, because they knew that it was anything but. You know, I call it racial cognitive dissonance that people are so wedded to an ideology that even the thing around them that shows the hypocrisy of the moment. Um, how many people mill together uh, to see a murder and they're quiet and they're orderly. That's not the nature of a mob. But if you write it and you leave it for the historical record, people will believe it, even if it's not so. Um, and so sometimes I think it's, it's to convince themselves. So we had 200 best of our best men. They weren't bloodthirsty. It was not for vengeance. Well, if it wasn't for vengeance, what was it for? It was for the protection of the so-called protection of, of white women and girls. Um, you know, so I, I think it was much more for at least the writing of that story was much more for white folk than for black folk. They didn't need to convince black people. Um, they needed to convince themselves. The lynching, however, was, a, you know, it's for both black and white, you know, for, for black people to see what happens to, you know, bad bad black men, um, you know, to, to how to stay in line, how to toe the line. Um, but it, it just, I remember seeing, you know, 200 of the best men. And I thought, my Lord, you know, to see a public execution. One of, one of the newspapers reported that the white men in the crowd left his body hanging and pinned a note on him that read, we do not know any better way to protect our wives and daughters. This um, was clearly, you know, uh, an act of intimidation, of, of terror. Um, how th This also speaks to the, the myth of, of um, sexuality and blackness that, that uh, fuels these lynchings. And I mean, we, we find in the historical record that black people created, in particular, uh, Ida B. Wells as an investigative journalist and anti-lynching crusader, you know, she found that over 95% of the cases, and you know, it probably was a higher number, these were all fabrications of sexual assault. You know, in the case of George McFadden, it was alleged, right? She didn't even say he raped her, but that it was an alleged sexual assault or misconduct. And so he might not have even put his hands on her. She might have just felt, you know, uncomfortable. Um, who knows, they might have been in a consensual relationship and she was found out. And this is the, the interesting thing, right? White men are supposedly trying to protect white women, but ever since white men were buying black bodies from coastal Africa, they had been engaging in 
these sexual relationships with black women against their will. They have been raping black women and selling their own children and enslaving their own children without punishment. Um, there was no protection for black women. Uh, you know, I mean, this goes on and on and on. You know, I'm from South Carolina and remember Strom Thurmond being a very long serving representative and meeting him. And I remember my mother and grandmother kind of looking at me like, I hope he didn't touch you <laughs> and not knowing what that meant. But the black people in South Carolina knew about this black daughter um, before she came public um, with the, you know, with the information. And so this had just been a part of the history. And yet the racial cognitive dissonance says, in fact, we are not the rapists, but black men and black boys are. And so this is what we do as a, a kind of public ritual and demonstration to show, you know, our manhood and our manliness. Um, and it's, and, and they knew they were being hypocrites. They knew it from every light skinned black face that they saw, you know, every finer grade as black people called it, you know, of hair that they, that they saw on boys and girls and men and women. They knew that they were the ones who were raping without punishment. And yet not one white man in the United States in American history had ever been prosecuted for the rape of a black woman until the mid 20th century. And that is an amazing historical record from 1619 to the mid 20th century. Not one white man had ever been prosecuted for the rape of a black woman. One newspaper um, reported that George McFadden refused a hood over his head. Uh, he has to see the perpetrators. Yeah, I, I read that it was a hood and they had a red handkerchief, I think, over his eyes. And, he, and that was his last request to remove it. Um, and he was stoic. And if there's anything about uh, the McFaddens and the Coopers, um, and there's an interesting thing. So I'm a double Cooper. My mother was a Cooper who married my father, who was a Cooper. <laughs> In, a, in another county, so I'm kind of a double Cooper. But on my mother's father's side, the Coopers tended to be a bit more acquiescent. On uh, the McFadden side, let's just say they were always known as uh, being fiery. And so I re you know, remember reading that part and uh, sharing that with my mother. And she's like, oh yeah, he was a McFadden for sure. Because, you know, I haven't, let's just say I haven't met a McFadden who wouldn't have made that choice. Um, you know, to, if you're going to do this, then you let me see what you're going to do. I don't want to be shrouded in, 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 in darkness. I want to see what you're going to do to me. When we come back, we'll discuss the pretense of a coroner's inquest that followed the murder of George McFadden and how it was that no one was ever prosecuted for the crime. Stay with us. Welcome back to History Interrupted. I'm Will Thomas. We're talking with Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens about the lynching of George McFadden on the night of October 1st, 1893. She is a professor of African-American history at the University of Nebraska and an expert on medical history, race, and the history of the South. She is also a relative of George McFadden. 
Dr. Cooper Owens. George McFadden wanted to see his perpetrators. He refused a cloth over his head. Later, the newspapers reported that there was a coroner's inquest. This has the veneer of a legal proceeding, uh, an inquest into the murder. But the determination of the coroner was that George McFadden, quote, came to his death from hanging at the hands of persons unknown to the jury. So no one is prosecuted. No white man would be a witness against any other white man in this crowd. What does this say about the law and the justice system at that time and even today? Yeah, I mean, that it was, it's an injustice system. Um, you know, I think today we are filming this podcast the day after uh, the country learned of Breonna Taylor's, um, the indictment that comes after Breonna Taylor's murder, essentially, and only one of the police officers, who's now a former police officer, will be charged uh, with wanton endangerment because of the possibility of hurting um, the life of her neighbors. And so, you know, once again, it is kind of the same thing. Um, also, this code of silence that um, white members of the law, in terms of the, the kinds of organizations around law enforcement, have heeded, um, you know, where they don't tell on each other, even for, um, you know, those who do things that are unethical, um, illegal, you know, and yet I think about the ways that that whole narrative of not snitching, particularly in this contemporary moment has been leveled against black people and especially poor black people um, in urban areas, you know, where they say, these black people just won't tell who the bad, you know, the bad actors are in their communities and they have this no snitching rule. And I'm like, but historically you have as well. And there's never been any, you know, kind of any examination of why no snitching works. Um, and the white community is in fact not seen as something that's bad. And so, you know, for me, it's just another kind of continuous line of the injustice system that happens when you have black and white people in this country. Um, it's, it's sad, you know, I, because they're not named, we will never know who, who the folk are or were, um, who pulled the lever uh, that, that executed George McFadden. You know, and that's just a, a sad commentary. The Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum you visited have called lynching in the U.S. racial terrorism. Some scholars have tried to broaden the definition of lynching to include a wide range of vigilante murders, especially in the West. And the Equal Justice Initiative, taking a different approach, has said that lynching really is about race and about terrorism. What are your thoughts on this question? Was lynching always about race? Yeah, it, I, you know, I first learned about the kind of multi-racial origins of lynching when I taught Susan Johnson's Roaring Camp and learned about, um, you know, these multi-racial uh, mobs lynching Chinese immigrants during the, the gold rush. And then how, you know, after slavery ends, 
something happens. And this, this is, you know, I think um, just a part of the transformation of what can happen with these cultural moments. All of a sudden, lynching, lynching becomes not Western, not Chinese, not multiracial, but it becomes, um, you know, as a, a kind of reign of terror because of the end of slavery, the end of legal racial segregation, a tool of white supremacists, white nationalists who want to return to the, to the glory days. And so all of a sudden, lynching is really about race. Um, and even in those, those smaller cases where white folk were lynched, you know, like the case of Leo Frank, here he was a Jewish man not accepted as a white person, right? A kind of pure white person. He was not Christian. He was a part of a marginalized group. And so in many ways, blackness is mapped onto certain quote unquote degraded um, European immigrants. And Leo Frank represented that. So it's always been about um, racial boogeymen. Black men have typically played that role and white people having to redeem themselves and redeem um, those members of their society seen as the most vulnerable. So girls and women. Um, and so what whips a crowd into a kind of mad frenzy, right? It's not just about, oh, these black folk are doing economically well or they've built a school or it, it's always about they are going to sexually attack and rape our women and children. And so, you know, lynching becomes a tool of white terrorism against black people. Um, yeah. How has this affected the, the, your family? How has this affected the, the knowledge that George McFadden uh, is your relative and this lynching in October of 1893? Um, can you talk about how it's affected your, your family? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because my mother um, is, when I say she's a family genealogist, it's, it's not just a hobby for her. Uh, my parents are divorced, but my father worked at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and then later College Park for 32, 33 years. And um, I spent a large chunk of my childhood in Washington, D.C., and my mother, after seeing Roots, I think like every middle-class Black woman in America, she was like, I've, I've got to do genealogy. And because she had this insider who was able to also kind of connect her with people and tell her about records, she has done an amazing job. So my mom has traced our, um, gosh, our roots to this country back to its colonial past. And most Black people cannot trace their family to uh, the 18th century. Um, you know, into the, the colonial era. Most Black folk get lost after about their great-grandparents, if they're lucky. So the fact that we know our ancestors were brought to Carolina Colony um, is amazing, and it's, it's due to her own handiwork and, and her own um, doggedness to find out who our ancestors were. What was interesting to my mom um, and, and me, we didn't know this history. And she also, when she retired from teaching, moved back to South Carolina from Washington, D.C. She was my grandmother's caretaker. My grandmother lived a really long time. Um, she died five weeks before her 100th birthday. Never mentioned it. In fact, my grandmother's father, who I knew, who was born in 1897 and died when he was 97 in the late 1970s, never mentioned this. 
Um, and so if the older generation knew, they didn't tell us. But my mother said something to me that was really interesting um, and quite profound. And I, you know, I said, I wonder, was there shame? Because he died, right? Um, and, and so there was just deep shame, you know, we were just kind of talking about it. And my mother said, but you know, it's interesting. He didn't know the story, but think about how many generations bear his name. So my great grandfather, four years after his death, is named George McFadden. He has grandsons named George McFadden and great grandsons, and now a great great grandson named George McFadden. And so this is a name that is constantly repeated on the McFadden side. Um, there are women, Georgette McFaddens, and so there's a name that just sticks in our family. And so. Um, there's something about that name, I think, and the passing on of that name that that has really surpassed all of the other uh, first names. And so it was interesting for my mother to bring that up. Um, I'd love to know if there was, in fact, any relative who knew. Um, there's only one remaining sibling from my grandmother's generation, my aunt, who's 91, and she didn't know about it. Um, you know, so it's it's just one of those things that I think was just buried. Um, because of the deep shame attached to him dying in that public way, but also dying um, because of this accusation and later confession that I am going to assume was a co coerced confession that he in fact did assault this, this young girl. Um, so there was deep shame. What do you think the United States needs to do to um, repair this history and recognize uh, what has happened in a more uh, thorough and complete way, if not to actually bring justice to those who against uh, the perpetrators, to at least acknowledge what has happened in a, in a more um, thorough way, more complete way. What, what, would, what would bring this from shame to something else, healing? I would love for him um, and the other two men. There was a man who was murdered um, almost five months before George uh, McFadden was. A Gaylord uh, was his last name, Mr. Gaylord. Um, and then there was another man whose uh, last name I think is, is Turner, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, in Williamsburg County, at least that we know of. They need to be pardoned. Um, we need to have some serious conversations and education and reckoning with the ways that law enforcement has been uh, developed, um, how it has been transformed in the 20th and the 21st centuries. Um, I think the numbers are telling. And to continuously blame Black people as, you know, somehow being deficient morally is a cop-out. You know, um, the ways in which Americans, um, and unfortunately, black and white Americans and everybody else, um, you know, who, who, are, who exist on a racial spectrum, law enforcement, politicians, it is just a narrative that somehow black people who commit crimes, they're more exceptional than other Americans to the point where you don't care about Asian on Asian crime, white on white crime, 
Spanish speaker against Spanish speaker, but black on black crime is a thing. And I'm like, how is it that black people have literally racialized crime? Like crime is now black on black. And so, you know, crime is committed by people who look alike because in America, most people who look alike live together. We still live in segregated communities. And so if you live in segregated communities, the person who's going to commit the crime typically looks like you. And yet nobody is willing to really look at the facts. They're just so willing to believe in black pathology or black people's pathology. So that's number one. When you have a, a system that is built upon those bedrocks, so it, it's already faulty. Um, when you have a system where no matter what happens, um, you know, I think about Breonna Taylor or think about Emmett Till, um, you know, whose murderers were not convicted 65 years before Brianna's, Brianna Taylor's killers were not convicted. Um, it's kind of the same thing. You know, I think black people are, are angry. They're weary um, of the same old thing. And it seems in this country that we are so invested in not having law enforcement really look at their own actions and policies um, critically that's what's disappointing because every other field has to look at themselves critically um but law enforcement and the justice system seems to not do that unless a white person speaks up and so that is disheartening the other part of it is there has to be some punitive damage um that uh, excuse not damage but action that happens but i once again i haven't seen that um with grand connor you know, the, the Graham versus Connor case that essentially says um, it has given kind of unmitigated power to the police. So if they say they fear for their lives, you're not going to really find a jury who's going to go against an officer who says he fears for his life. And so when you have those kinds of laws and, and rulings, I don't know what else can be done. I think the Equal Justice Initiative and some others are working on memorializing sites of, of lynchings. Um, is there a memorial to George McFadden? No. Um, I, most Black people in Williamsburg County, and it is a predominantly Black county, wouldn't even know um, that the, the lynching occurred. I didn't know. Um, you know, one of the first markers I saw as a little girl in King Street. So it's King Street is the, the town center. Um, Lake City is actually in Florence County. So this happened near Lake City. So right on the Florence County, Williamsburg County line. But he, he was killed in Williamsburg County. And um, one of the first markers was to the Civil War, you know, Civil War soldiers, white Civil War soldiers in this like predominantly Black county um so there are not a lot of markers um we have a, a few about notable residents um that's really about it we're part of the Gullah Geechee corridor but i think that you know lynching invokes a lot of white guilt um a lot of black rage and people just don't want to to reckon with those feelings because oftentimes it, it makes you feel um it, it makes you feel like, you know, that, that there's a kind of emotional blockage because the groups just can't seem to speak to each other and they're speaking past each other. So sometimes it's best that they not 
talk about these kinds of things. Um, and the town is so fractured anyway, racially, that um, even if a marker were to come, I, there would probably only be black folk um, in, in all honesty who would recognize it and, um, and, and give you know, some solemnity to that marker. So I don't know what a memorialization would do outside of something that's superficial. Do you think a truth and reconciliation approach would be viable or, or useful in this instance? I think it would. But it would have to, for me, um, okay, truth and reconciliation can happen. I would then need to see, is there something that is resolutions-based? So Williamsburg County fluctuates between being the poorest county in the state or the second poorest county in the state. And like Lee County, it's one of the only predominantly black counties. We have no industry for the past 30 years. we don't even have an, a maternity ward. The school, the school system is one of the top 100 worst performing school systems in the country, not just the state, in the country. So a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Winsburg County would be great to have people kind of get out their feelings, but then is that going to change the actual legacy of racism and anti-Blackness? Um, is that going to bring industry? Is that going to change the, the statistics in terms of the school system? Um, will there be social services for poor people? You know, I, for me, I would want it attached to something that is economic-based that is going to bring growth. Um, it's sad to say that Williamsburg County boomed and was a really prosperous county during the time of slavery and Jim Crow. And so once those things were dismantled, it then becomes the poorest county. Well, finally, what about a Truth and Reconciliation Commission more nationally um, related to lynching? Several scholars are calling for this sort of approach. I mean, is this this something that would um, bring wider historical reckoning about this? I think, yeah, in that case, I think it makes people more empathetic, um, more compassionate. You know, I think people who are educated and educated about the whole story of American history, not just kind of the shiny, glossy parts. And it doesn't mean you hate the country. It just means you're able to to live in a place knowing that um, no country, no person is perfect. And so what do we do um, not to not to repeat uh, ourselves, not to not to repeat things that are harmful to, to each other? So, yes, in that sense. Um, but, you know, I, here's the, the pragmatist in me from being someone who studies um, race and racism. Once again, what is that actually attached to? Um, I, I do reproductive medicine. And even though I talk about, you know, my joke is always, I, I write about dead people. <laughs> they died in the 19th century. Um, but the legacy of medical racism is that this country is now in a, a crisis involving black women and children. So it's a black maternal crisis. So for me, I'm like, we can talk about it, but what are we gonna do to change the numbers so that those lives are saved? So in terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it's wonderful, let's educate people, let's get the message out, let's have this in the textbooks, let's have honest, um, empathetic conversations. But in these places, and they're, they're really in the Black Belt South, those kind of cotton producing states, 
you know, former cotton producing states, how do we create an economic impact that develops that land and those people and brings industry and good schools and services? Um, that's what we really need. And so that's what I would want attached to, to this, this larger project. Thank you, Deirdre Cooper Owens. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Join us next time for a podcast on the 1918 influenza pandemic. This is History Interrupted. I'm Will Thomas.